Our scripture reading today will come from the book of 2 Corinthians, chapter 5, verse 17, through chapter 6, verse 2. And if you're following in your pew Bible, it's on page 819. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has gone, the new has come. All this is from God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation that God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting men's sins against them. And he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors, as though God were making his appeal through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. As God's fellow workers, we urge you not to receive God's grace in vain. For he says, In the time of my favor, I heard you, and in the day of salvation, I helped you. I tell you, now is the time of God's favor. Now is the day of salvation. May God bless the reading of his word. Good morning. Nice to be speaking to such a full house. Glad the, uh, the Netherlands are in the house. Uh, <laughs> um, today we're going to be finishing our Follow Jesus series, where we've been looking at four core elements of discipleship. Belonging, believing, becoming, and today, beautifying. And I'm going to be speaking on a topic that As I was preparing this, honestly, I found it so immensely big, so daunting, (laughs) that I'm afraid to even approach it. It's so far-reaching and profound that I feel like I'm only just going to skim the surface today. But what I pray is that even just in skimming the surface, that God would use what we're going to study today, this morning, for... Uh, For some, for the first time. For others, a rekindling of the flame. But to awaken us to the radical, indescribably beautiful, unimaginably large, dangerous, and exciting adventure that he's calling us into. So, the past few weeks, we've been preaching on finding our belonging in God's family growing in our belief in God as we little by little become uh, more and more like Jesus, shaped in his image. And so we believe that these are, these are essential things to what it means to follow Jesus, to follow Christ, be a disciple. But we can't leave it there. There's a very real danger of just believing in God, joining a church, focusing on your personal holiness, and Neglecting to ask, what is it all for? What is the big picture? And so today I want to talk about the big picture. And it really is big. Uh, (laughs) I remember um, as a teenager, I'm not sure what age I was, but as a teenager, an older friend of mine asking the question, if we're forgiven and we're going to heaven and... This world is passing away. Then 
Why doesn't God just take us right to heaven? What's the point of hanging around here? Why doesn't God just take us right to heaven? Sounds good. <laughs> well, um, I was in the, in the car with my parents, and I remember them giving some answers. And um, I remember also feeling not completely satisfied with the answers. Um, it's not that they were wrong. I mean, the, the answers focused on missions, and God wants us here that we can you know, bring as many people into heaven with us. Um, and so that's why we're, we're, we're kind of hanging around. Um, but I wasn't completely satisfied with those answers. And the problem wasn't with the answers, actually. The problem was with the question. Because I don't know if you've wondered that same thing that my friend did. I, I've certainly wondered that before. But the problem with the question is that it misses the big picture. And it's not surprising because a lot of times the gospel is understood like this. Jesus died to save me from my sins so that when I die, I can go to heaven. And obviously that's kind of a, uh, a reduction. Most of the time it's said with much more nuance than that. But that's kind of the takeaway message for many people that it boils down to a negative. It boils down to forgiveness and then something that happens when I die. And so the problem that you run into, that my friend ran into, is if that's the full picture of what the gospel means, then where does everyday, normal, earthly life and this whole creation that we live in fit into that equation? If we're just made for heaven then what was the point of all this? The vast, in that picture, the vast majority of human work, life, and existence seems to be completely excluded from what it means to be saved, to what it means to be a Christian. And so effectively, what you end up with is reducing the whole purpose of human life to morality, which is why everyone thinks it's all about just being a good person, it ends up reducing salvation to just something that happens after death. And it ends up reducing human destiny to abandoning the physical world and having some spiritual existence eternally in heaven. And so the, the, the kind of takeaway message for a lot of people of the gospel is ask Jesus to forgive your sins so that when you die you can go to heaven and try and behave yourself along the way. Try and do a bit of good while you wait. Um, now, actually, the bigger problem with that is that that's not actually what the Bible teaches us. Um, as popular as that understanding is, human beings were not just created for moral behavior. We were created with a calling, with a vocation. Human destiny isn't floating spirits up in heaven playing harps for all eternity. Human destiny is glorified physical bodies reigning and ruling with Christ on a new, redeemed earth. Eternal life isn't just something that happens when you die. Eternal life begins now, when you become uh, one, when you're unified with Christ. And so... I'm going to let's look at each of those three, but in reverse order. So um, starting with verse 17, 
that we read, <clears throat> anyone who is in Christ is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. Verse 17, it's, it's one of the most beautiful, precious verses, I think, in the whole, um, the whole Bible about what it means to be a Christian. It tells us that Christians aren't just nice, well-behaved people. They're not just people that apologize all the time for how badly they mess up. They're not someone that just, that just goes to heaven when they die. It's not even primarily someone who believes certain things or feels a certain way or acts a certain way. The essence of being a Christian means to be in Christ, to belong to him. The old has passed away. The new has come. Anyone who is in Christ is a new creation. And so when you're in Christ, Jesus himself describes it as being born again, being born from above. You are a new creation. Eternal life. What that means is that the life of Jesus himself, the life of God, is now planted in you. It's called an imperishable seed in 1 Peter Planted in you now. Not one day when you become worthy, not one day when you die, but eternal life is put in you now. And it's a transformation at the deepest part of your being as a person, as an individual. What it means is we're no longer in Adam, now we're in Christ. We belong to Him. And so, when you become a Christian, your identity changes. Your very nature changes. And then the rest of your walk as a disciple is growing up into who you are in Christ. Jesus starts where every other religion and world system wants to eventually take you. Every other world religion and system tells you one day by following these certain beliefs or these feelings or these actions, you can become the kind of person that is acceptable to God. Jesus says, come to me with nothing to offer and I will make you a child of God now and spend the rest of your life learning what it means to think and feel and act as a child of God, as already who you are. It's a complete reversal and so it's a transformation at the deepest part of who we are as an individual. But the picture gets much bigger than that because it's not only true at an individual level, it's true at a global level. Jesus um, is called the new Adam. And so what that means is if Adam was the first representative of humanity, Jesus, as the new Adam, he begins a completely new family line. He begins a completely new branch of humanity. He's the, he represents in himself the redeemed, restored humanity. And so anyone in Christ is now not just a new creation in themselves, they are part of this redeemed humanity, this new branch of human existence in Christ. And that's why Paul says um, elsewhere that there's no, um, there's no racial, there's no gender or cultural divides within the body of Christ. We're united in him, and all those old barriers that came with the old humanity are taken away. They cease to matter. 
And so it's, a, it's an individual level, it's a global level, but if you can believe it, it actually gets even bigger than that. Because this, this verse in, um, in Greek, it literally says, um, anyone who is in Christ is new creation. Not a new creation, but is new creation. The old has passed away, behold, the new has come. And if you're familiar with the Bible, those words might remind you of other parts of the Bible. Because Paul is directly referencing one of the most central themes throughout all of Scripture, the Old and New Testaments, God's promise that he is making all things new. You can find it in so many different places. I'll just mention a few. In Ezekiel 31, God promises to make a new covenant with his people. Um, uh, in, in the uh, book of Isaiah, chapter 43, God says, Remember not the former things, nor consider the things of old. Behold, I am doing a new thing. Um, in chapter six, 65 of Isaiah, it expands on that and says, Behold, I create a new heavens and a new earth. The former things shall not be remembered or come into mind. And then what follows in chapter 65 is this incredibly beautiful description of the renewed city of God, the, the, the new Jerusalem, where there's no more suffering, where there's no more violence, where there's no more hostility, where work is meaningful and lasting and fulfilling. It's a place of utter joy. And so we have this picture developing of what God is doing behind it all. What God is up to in his master plan. And then at the end of the book, in Revelation, what we read is the conclusion of history is that God doesn't just destroy the earth and take everybody to heaven. But let's, let's read it. Revelation 21, verses 1 to 5. It says, then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. I love that part of the Bible. <laughs> the, the end of the story, the end of the, the great saga of human history is that God is recreating a new earth, a new Jerusalem that descends from heaven to a new earth. And that those in heaven return to earth to rule and reign with Christ. You can read that in, in chapter 22, verse 5. It says that they will rule the new Jerusalem, the new earth with Christ. And so, <clears throat> what this all means is that this is what the death of Jesus was ultimately accomplishing. This is the new creation that God set in motion when Jesus went to the cross. 
It was a complete revolution. Reality, the fabric of reality was forever changed on that afternoon 2,000 years ago on Good Friday that we call today. The cross is where Jesus became king. Where he became king of that new creation. Jesus' death didn't just make um, possible some reality in the future. Jesus' death made actual a new reality that is quietly but invincibly working itself out in history. This quiet kingdom that God has promised will redeem and renew and restore all things. And just like that imperishable seed that that 1 Peter says is planted in us when we're born again in Christ, um, that seed is planted in the, in the, fabric, the fabric of reality, and it's gradually growing, taking root, and working itself out into the whole creation. It's subverting that old reality that's passing away. It's giving birth to that new reality that is forgiveness, that is the new creation, the kingdom of God. And so that's why... Um, 1 Corinthians 15, it talks about Jesus' resurrection as the first fruits. It talks about the resurrection as the first taste, the first sign of the new heavens and the new earth invading the old heavens and the old earth. So this is big. (laughs) It doesn't get any bigger than this. God's mission is far bigger than just about getting us saved and going to heaven when we die. It's about making us part of that new creation, that revolution that's taking place all around us quietly, imperceptibly, but absolutely unstoppably. And it's making it now. If you are in Christ, you are new creation. You are part of that new creation You are a citizen of that new earth, that new heaven, that new Jerusalem, even while you're living in the midst of the old one. That is the big picture. He is making all things new. He's redeeming all things. And Colossians 1, 19 and 20 uh, sums this up too. It says, For in him, Jesus that is, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself All things, whether in earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And so we'll we'll move on to to verse 18. It brings us to that third um, misconception about uh, the gospel. Humanity wasn't just made for morality, but we were made for a calling. And the idea, this idea that's, that, that was mentioned in Colossians of, of reconciliation is, is central to this passage that we're looking at. Um, Paul is the only one to use the word, this word reconciliation in the New Testament, and he uses it five times in these few verses that we read, which is um, a way of saying, pay attention, this is really important. <clears throat> um, With that common view of the gospel that we looked at earlier, what it boils down to is 
sin management. The basic problem is that human beings behave immorally. And so what that leads to is this legal view that sin incurs a debt and a legal penalty that has to be cleared. And so Jesus died so the debt could be cleared and the penalty removed. And of course, those things are absolutely true. They're biblical. But they were, an ends to, uh, they were a means to an end. Jesus didn't just die to set us free from something. He died to set us free for something. God wasn't doing all that in Christ just to forgive and clear a debt, although that was absolutely necessary. He didn't want to leave it there. And, and, and if you think about it, if you go to court, imagine if that was the whole picture. If you go to court and the judge clears your debt, forgives you your, your, your penalty, you leave the court happy, relieved, but you hope that you never have to see the judge again ever in your life, right? Reconciliation is much bigger and deeper than just clearing a debt, than just escaping punishment. Reconciliation is about the restoration of a relationship. The backdrop of why God set all of this in motion, this plan of salvation, it says in verse 18, was to reconcile us to himself. Reconciliation is, is about restoring a broken relationship. And so you might ask, well, restore to what? And so in order to know what God wants to restore it to, we have to look at what was his intention originally, what was his original design. And so Genesis 1 and 2 tells us exactly that, that humanity was made uniquely in the image of God. And so that's a huge concept, but part of the core of what it means is that humanity was made to reflect God's character, to rule as God rules, to cultivate the earth creatively like God creatively cultivated the universe. To carry on the work of God. And if you think about it, it's, it's, it's actually pretty extraordinary. Because if you think about what an image is, an image is uh, a visible representation of an object. It's a, it's a faithful representation of, of something. It's not the thing itself, but it makes the object visible. And so what this means is God created us to be the visible representation on earth of the invisible God. We were made to be the visible representation of the invisible God. And so our purpose was to be the image of God on earth. That is almost unimaginably high of a, of a calling. Um, theologians talk about the cultural mandate, which you find in, uh, it's, it's the first, it's the blessing that God gives over humanity. Um, Genesis 1, 27 and 28, which says, God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. 
Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. So what we see about this calling to be the image of God is, first of all, it's a calling together. It's male and female together best represents the image of God. It's not maleness that is essentially uh, the image of God. It's not femaleness. It's male and female that together, it says, God created them in his image. So we best represent God's image in community, of course, because God is community. God is Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And so it's a calling. uh, It's a communal calling. And to be the image of God on earth was not just a list of rules to follow. It was an identity. It was a calling. It was a vocation. God's covenant here with Adam and Eve, it's not a covenant of works. It's a covenant of vocation. A covenant to be his images. Now, biblically speaking, the other word for image is idol. You remember that from the second commandment, you shall make no graven images. You shall, in other words, make no idols. Um, and this is really where we get to the heart of the problem. Because the essential problem beneath it all of the human race is not that we do sinful things. The essential problem of the human race is that we worship the wrong things. The essential problem at the bottom of it all is idolatry in the human heart. Uh, I think it was John Calvin that famously called the the human heart an idol factory. Um, God didn't just create us to be morally obedient slaves. He created us to be intimate sons and daughters carrying on his work in creation in his image. And so when we disobeyed God, it wasn't that just we broke a rule. The reason it was so serious and so deadly is that it, it, what it meant was turning our backs on that calling that God gave us. It meant turning our backs on our God-given identity to be his images. What it was was idolatry. Inverting the order of creation and placing created things above the creator. And when that's the case, inevitably, the result is that all of the good things that God created, and God created everything good, but when the order of creation is out of, is out of whack, all of the good things that God created begin to be used in ways that he never intended them to be. They become abused, which is what sin is, taking the good things that God's created and using them in ways that lead to our destruction and God's God's judgment. When you abuse something, it naturally leads to breakdown, both of the thing and of the person that, that abuses it. And so idolatry, it's this disorder of worship, an inversion of what is central to human purpose. It's that disease in the human heart. And the, and the symptom is sin. 
what we end up doing is sin. And that ultimately leads to breakdown and ultimately to death. And that's, this is what we read. You can, you can see this, this, um, this order in Romans 1. Romans 1, uh, verses 21 to 25, is Paul's most famous um, diagnosis of the human condition. It says, For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore, God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies amongst themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. So you can see in Paul's diagnosis here that what comes first is idolatry. Exchanging the truth of God for a lie. Exchanging the living God for images of man and animals and, and created things. We began worshiping images of ourselves and, and other created things rather than the creator. And that doesn't mean bowing down and offering sacrifices in a religious sense. Worship is when you center your life around something. Worship is saying, I must have that thing. This is, this is my ultimate purpose in life is to have that thing. And so we've centered our lives around anything but the creator, the living God, who, who, who should have been at the center of our hearts. And so the inevitable result is sin, disintegration, and everything that was once whole is now tainted with it and broken. It's broken our relationship to God. It's broken our relationship with one another. You see, immediately when, when idolatry and sin enters the picture, immediately there's this break between husband and wife, this, this gender war. Um, there's a breakdown within ourselves, our relationship within ourselves. Psychologically, we have alienation um, from the way our human fullness was meant to be. And it leads to the breakdown of our relationship with creation as well. And so the whole world is groaning under the weight of, of this idolatry, this brokenness. When we sinned, what we did was hand over. God gave us this power, this authority as his images in earth. But by placing other things above God, we handed our power over to those things. And so when, whenever you do that you become a slave to whatever you, you serve. You become um, addicted to whatever you serve. And so, as God's images turning over our authority, our power to other things, it means God's whole plan for the creation is broken, <laughs> is, is, is impeded. Because his images have handed over their power, have handed over their authority. 
And so what you begin to see is this is why the death of Jesus is so incredibly huge and revolutionary because he died not just to forgive us our sins, but to set us free from the whole slavery to sin that we've sold ourselves into. Jesus' death is the new exodus, freeing us from our, our, our slave master of sin. Um, we were originally created as, as images of God and Adam, but like we saw, that image was broken. Jesus comes as the new Adam, and Romans 8.29 says, we, as, his, as God's children, are being reshaped into the image of Jesus. We are being reshaped into the full image of God in Christ. We're being reshaped into our full destiny that God created us with. And so, through Jesus, God set all of this in motion. He reconciles us to himself. He reconciles us one to another as those old divisions of humanity fall down in Christ. He reconciles us to our calling. And he uses us to carry on his mission of reconciling the whole creation to him. That's why it says he, he has, in, in verse 18, he's entrusted to us the ministry of reconciliation. The message of reconciliation. God extends his mission of reconciling the world through us. And it's not that he needs us. It's that he chooses to partner with us. He gives us the incredible honor and calling of carrying on his mission, of being his representation on earth. And that's why as we move on to verse 20, Paul says we are ambassadors for God. Now, we all know what an ambassador is. Um, if you think about it in, in terms of a, a, um, a kingdom, an ambassador of, of a kingdom is, is sent out by the king. Uh, an ambassador is not the king himself, but he's a highly honored official who is trusted to represent the king's interests, the king's power, the king's authority in the place where he's sent. And so what we see here is Paul calling us ambassadors for God is this is the restoration of our calling as the image of God. And there's, there's, there's two aspects to this. First of all, uh, Paul says, we're entrusted with the message of reconciliation. And he says, uh, this is in verse 20, we implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. And so the first, the first part of our job, our calling as ambassadors of God, of Christ, is to carry the message of reconciliation. It's a message of forgiveness. It's a message of being set free from the power of sin and darkness. It's a message of the unshakable hope of that promise of a new creation, of the restoration of all things. Isaiah 52, 7 says, How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of those who bring good news, who publish peace, who bring good news of happiness, 
who publish salvation, who say to Zion, your God reigns. Now that verse right there was the reason we chose the word beautify as the fourth B in the series, and also for some convenient alliteration. Um, <laughs> but the message that we carry as ambassadors of, of, of God is a beautiful message. It's a peaceful message. It's even a happy message, it says there. Being a Christian isn't all about being dire and, oh, I'm such a terrible sinner, even though that's absolutely true. Ultimately, God has given us all of this for our joy to be complete. And so it's this message that God is on the throne who say to Zion, your God reigns. He has promised a new heaven and a new earth. That creation is, is underway now. It's already begun. It started with Jesus' resurrection. It carries on through his church today, his representatives, his ambassadors. And the message is, hey, you can be part of it. You can be part of that kingdom, that new creation today. That brokenness that you've experienced in your life, in your personality, in your relationships, in your, in your work, that can be set right ultimately in the future. But God wants to start setting it right right now. He wants to make you part of a brand new, whole, restored, redeemed creation. What a beautiful message. But Paul says, I appeal to you, be reconciled to God. And so, it's something that we have to receive. Reconciliation, if you think about it, it only works when both sides agree to be reconciled. I can do everything in my power to, to take away all the offenses and, and deal with all the, 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 the problems that separated us. But if you don't want to accept Forgiveness, if you don't want to accept reconciliation, then there will be no restoration of the, of the relationship. And so what we see is God has taken every, it says all of this is from God. God has taken every initiative possible to the extent of giving his own son to die for us to reconcile us to himself. There is a new reality. It's called forgiveness. And you can enter into it if you will. You can receive that reconciliation with God. And so the question is, as, as we carry that message, will you step into it? There is a beautiful new reality that God is offering to you. Will you step into it? And it's such a beautiful message when you see the bigness of it that we're not only proclaiming forgiveness, although of course we are. We're not only proclaiming escaping from judgment, although of course we are. What we're proclaiming is reconciliation with God, with our eternal purpose. What greater adventure, what greater calling, what greater purpose could we declare? So I don't know about you, that makes me excited to declare it. <laughs> To, to, to carry that message. But what Paul goes on to say is, being an ambassador for God goes beyond 
logos, it goes beyond only words. It means physically being a force for reconciliation and redemption in the world. That's why uh, verse 21, one of the most profound, mysterious verses in the whole New Testament, it says, for, for our sake, God made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. That's incredible. On the cross, Jesus somehow became sin, is what it says. And he did that not only so that we could receive the righteousness of God, a legal declaration, although of course that's involved, he did it so that it says we would become the righteousness of God. We would, it would become part of our being to be the righteousness of God. And in the Bible, um, God's righteousness is not just some kind of abstract theoretical concept uh, of moral goodness. God's righteousness is, it, it means his faithfulness to the covenant, to the promises that he's made. God's righteousness, when, 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 um, when Paul talks about that as a Jew, he has, in his, he has in mind the whole history of God's acts of faithfulness, his promises, and every single thing that he's done in history to fulfill those promises, to be faithful to those promises, to that covenant that he made with his people. It refers to how true he's, he's been um, in fulfilling those promises. And so what it means for us to become the righteousness of God is, what I think it's saying is, we're meant to be the living, breathing embodiments of God's faithfulness in this earth. We're to embody the faithful character of God. We're ambassadors and citizens of that new heaven. We make, and so, so what this means is, as a citizen, as an ambassador of the new heaven and new earth, called to be the righteousness of God in the earth, we are working to bring the reality of the new heaven and new earth more and more into being in creation. Our work is bringing about the signs, the foretastes of the new heavens and the new earth. Bringing about the signs of that new society, the kingdom of God. So what does this look like? I think every single statement I've made today could be a whole sermon in itself. But I think probably the best place to, to start to look at what does... Uh, what does this look like is looking at Jesus' mission statement in Luke 4, 18 to 19. Um, where he's quoting Isaiah 61. Jesus got up in the synagogue and declared, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he's anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And so you see the elements of Jesus' mission here as truth. 
proclaiming good news to the poor, compassion, bringing sight to the blind, justice, bringing freedom to the oppressed and the captive. These are some of the signs of the new creation. These are some of the the foretastes of God's new society that he's bringing about. The new society in Christ where all the old fallen structures of the world are subverted. It's no longer about lies and deception to get ahead and and, uh, um, uh, make your way in the world. It's a kingdom of truth. It's a kingdom of light. It's no longer about power and violence and, and control and political domination. It's about compassion for the weak and the downtrodden. It's no longer about uh, empire and oppression and slavery. It's about justice. And Jesus, this is Jesus' way. This is what he lived out. Jesus' way of being completely subverted every structure of, of power in the human world. And Jesus' way looks absolutely weak. It looked weak to his contemporaries. It looked weak to his disciples. It looked weak to the people that were putting him to death. And it continues to look weak to the world today. And yet Jesus' way is the truest power that the world has ever seen. The power that was subverting the entire old creation. It's what strength really looks like. Forgiveness is the new reality. The old structures are passing away. And the church is called to be a foretaste of that new society. Where all those old structures no longer hold true. Where there's no cultural or racial divisions. Even though we see in heaven that there's still nations and tribes and tongues. Those, those, those differences, those distinctions still matter. They're, they're God um, created and blessed. But there's no longer barriers. There's no longer hostility. There's no abusive power structures that are meant to exist in God's new kingdom and new society. Even though power itself still exists, the new heavens and the new earth is not a a free-for-all democracy, it's a kingdom with a king and rulers. And so it's not about overthrowing power, it's about the right use of godly power. And so um, this is the society that we're called into. That our work is meant to contribute to. Working for the signs and the foretastes of the kingdom. And so, when you, when you, if you can begin to think of your work as fitting into that grand scheme of the redemption of the whole creation, I mean, yeah, extremely daunting. <laughs> but what it means is we have a new purpose for our work. We have a new... Um, a new meaning for our work. And it's not just about church activities. It's about all of our work contributing to that redemption of the whole creation. So this is, this is all incredibly huge. I warned you. Um, it's extremely daunting. I mean, what a responsibility. What a calling on us as the church. What a task. <laughs> but that's why I included verses 1 and 2 here of chapter 6, because the good news is that we're not left alone to accomplish all this. 
In fact, it's not even up to us to accomplish all this. This is what God is doing. This is what he will accomplish. And we're invited to work with him. Um, It says, uh, working together with God. And the word translated there, working together, is synergeo, synergy. Working in synergy with God. It's two things working side by side together for the same purpose. We work in synergy with God as we work for the new creation. And so, working, walking in step with the Holy Spirit gives us a new power for our work. It's not just, even though um, work on earth contains all this frustration and this sense of futility and useless kind of toil um, that you read in, in the book of Ecclesiastes especially, our work as we work with God, is not meaningless. It's not a drop in uh, an endless you know, ocean that is meaningless. Our work with God counts for eternity. We are contributing to this new creation, this new kingdom. And that's why it says in, in 1 Corinthians 15, your labor is not in vain. And so Paul brings it home to every single one of us by saying, do not receive the grace of God in vain. Don't receive the grace of God in vain. And receiving it in vain, it doesn't mean rejecting it. Remember, he's writing to Christians. He's not talking about rejecting it. It means it has been received. We're not talking about, uh, you know, eternal salvation. Um. It's about being content with this reduced, miniature Christianity. A reduced purpose. Receiving it in vain means failing to make use of it. Because God's grace is a gift. In fact, the word grace is often translated as gift in other places. And uh, how do you show appreciation for a gift? You can receive a gift... And you can put it on the shelf, never look at it, never use it, never enjoy it ever again. You still have the gift, but you're essentially uh, wasting it. (laughs) You're essentially not using it. You're not enjoying it. You can become a Christian and just kind of try and behave yourself while you wait to go to heaven. But God says, and Paul appeals to us, what a shame. What a waste of this glorious adventure that God wants you to join in with him on. The way to make the most of a gift and to truly show gratitude is to use it. You experience, the only way to experience the joy of the gift is to use it. And so this this is my question for us today. Will you be content with a small life? Will you be content in this reduced Christianity? Will you join in on what God is doing? Redeeming the creation. Because it says in that last, in in verse 2, chapter 6, now is the favorable time. Now is the day of salvation. It's not some day long in the future. Now is the time to join in with what God is doing.
there's this incredible, exciting, world-changing story to join in on. And it's so much bigger than we often think about it. We, we receive the, the gift, the grace of reconciliation, but then to make the most of it, to use the gift, to enjoy the gift for all that it's worth, we become part of God's story, part of God's mission in the world. And so there's no higher purpose. There's no higher calling. Don't reduce it. Don't miss out. Don't settle for a nice, quiet, small-minded life. <laughs> um, C.S. Lewis, I know this quote by heart because it's one of my uh, most impacting quotes, that we are like half-hearted beings, fooling around with drink and sex and ambition when infinite uh, joys are offered to us. Like an ignorant child messing around in mud puddles in a slum when being offered the holiday at the sea. <laughs> We're content. That, that's, I missed a few words there, but... We're content with so much less than God wants for us. And so now is the day to take hold of God's purposes for you. If you're in Christ, you are new creation. You are a new creation. The way to make the most of that incredible gift is to give it away. Be part of bringing about that new creation yourself. And so, just to end, I want to I leave you with a couple questions that um, are just to, to think over. How has your vision of God's kingdom been small-minded? Second question, what would becoming the righteousness of God look like in your life? In your circumstances, in the places, the people, the relationships that he's put you in, what would be being the righteousness of God look like for you? What opportunities do you have to show God's truth, God's compassion, God's justice, God's faithfulness? And then lastly, what holds you back from joining in on what God's doing? Let's pray together. Father God, what we've looked at today is so immensely, unimaginably big. <laughs> it's so high. Lord, we can't grasp what this means. Lord, but I pray, uh, Holy Spirit, you would, through what we've studied today, as we continue to think about each of these things for our own lives, Lord, that you would begin to awaken us to this, this grand story, this incredibly huge mission of beautifying your creation, redeeming it, reconciling it, restoring it with you, joining in on your mission. Lord, so we just thank you for um, what we've looked at today, these, in, these beautiful truths that we are part of that new creation, that our destiny is secure in the new heaven and new earth to rule and reign with you. Lord, I pray we wouldn't neglect that gift. We wouldn't receive it in vain, but we would use it. We would do our utmost to join in with your highest calling. 
We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.